0: I mean, that's well sort music. You sort of music. I mean, that's WKCR FM New York. My name is Mitch Goldman. This is Jazz Alternatives. We have a presentation of the program Deep Focus tonight. And joining me to put the deep focus on the music of pianist Andrew Hill is pianist Vijay Iyer. Vijay, welcome back to WKCR. Thanks, Mitch. How are you? Amazed.
1: Thanks for that theme song. Oh. Bebop, downtown version of Bebop. That was, that
0: was. That was Shannon Jackson and the Decoding Society's oh, of hey. version of Bebop.
1: I played with Shannon. You did? <laughs> yes. Wow. And not know that. And uh, what Dada Leo Smith's band. Oh, about yes. A, yeah, we did quite a lot together.
0: Wow. I want to hear about that. But maybe not tonight. Okay. I, don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But uh, I'm trying to keep the focus, man. It's called Deep Focus. I should yeah. have, uh, if I'd called the show, you know, Deep wide Distraction. Angle. Yeah, <laughs> Wide Angle. That would work. Yeah, that could work. But I, I got to hear about that. I'm fascinated. Yeah. But uh, as we know, Deep Focus, we put the uh, shine the light on one particular artist and see if we could find some... unfamiliar recordings of them and I asked you who you might like to take a look at and you were pretty quick with the response Mm. Andrew Hill and I'm just curious if that's uh, something that you're taking a recent interest in or an, uh, an original inspiration or
1: oh he's been a I've been a fan since about 1990 I think
0: one of the first few
1: CDs I bought when CDs When I first was able to buy CDs, when I first got a CD player, I was, I think, a sophomore in college, and I remember I got three albums. I got Out to Lunch, um, you know, Dolphy. Mm -hmm. I got Mode for Joe, Mm -hmm. and I got Point of Departure. Three great ones. Three very great ones. And there was quite a lot of overlap in personnel and stuff, you know. Uh, yeah. They were all sort of of a piece. I think they were all had been recently reissued on or issued. Maybe, maybe those might've been the first editions of them on CD actually. Uh, Blue so notes. those, yeah. And of course, you know, I'm not saying this is the first music I ever bought. Right. Cause I have about, I don't know, a basement full of cassettes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I used to buy right. cassettes. Uh, but yeah, these were some of the first, uh, So I remember I just had those three albums in rotation for a long time, but Andrew's music was really, uh, had all this mystery in it and subtlety and grace and, um, power, you know? Yeah. And just grandeur, you know, his vision of, his approach to the instrument was very orchestral and had a lot of space. And, uh, the way he orchestrated was, uh, really he just, he had a different vision, you know, that it didn't seem, uh, obviously connected to, um, you know, other composer arrangers of that same period. It had very much its own identity. Anyway, so I continued checking out his music. I I got more and more recordings of his. And then in the early 90s, when I had moved to Oakland, uh, I had some chances to see him live. And one of the first chances was in, uh, in, this is interesting, it was um it was an encounter with the group trio three uh-huh it was oliver lake andrew cyril and reggie workman and last month or two months ago i just had the amazing honor of sitting in the same chair basically being a yeah. guest, guest pianist with that same band mm-hmm. so that was kind of uh you know i was i was reminiscing about that concert in particular because it was so revelatory for me and
0: uh what what was revealed
1: um hmm that's a tough i mean it's hard to even put into words sure uh but i think just seeing him function as a pianist in an ensemble it wasn't like comping and then soloing yeah and yeah. then comping some more it was very different it was more like uh you know if you see Cecil Taylor in his ensembles um as Braxton observed about him, he's always playing. And it's not often, like it's not exactly soloistic. Sometimes he's, it's sort of like the focus is on him or the, he's sort of generating the most energy, but it's very much in counterpoint with everything. So that was kind of what I noticed about Andrew. But I also noticed that, uh, well, I remember actually one thing I'll never forget about is that he had this very strange stool that was like on... It was like a spring-loaded stool, and he sat really high. This was... I'm not sure if this was just a single occasion or if this is something he traveled with, but it was about... He was sitting really high, like his... uh, Like almost standing. Almost standing. And the thing teetered, so he kind of had this, like, (laughs) rocking... he was never quite upright, and he was never quite stable. Mm. It was actually just, like, there was this instability, mm. and it kind of mirrored the instability that he was generating musically uh, uh, in the sense... It wasn't instability in the sense of um, of uh, confusing matters musically, but more that it was uh, restless, I think is the yeah. word. Yeah, And uh had this grandeur like i said earlier um it wasn't comping and soloing it wasn't like playing lines in the right hand and (laughs) voicings in the left hand it was really just approaching the piano as this um force of nature you know And, and uh a lot of very chordal stuff very uh spread out sonorities and uh just got a huge sound out of the instrument. He really got it ringing and shaking. It was like the whole room was vibrating. So that was just different for me. It was sort of probably what it was like to see Monk live. I had this a, feeling. A, a lot that of the was, stuff you're
0: saying calls to mind Monk's approach. Yeah, yeah, and there's a clear
1: lineage and and uh, indebtedness. And of course, on the song on the album Point of Departure, there's a tune called New Monastery, which is a sort of sly reference to Monk, and. Uh, you know, there's a lot of homage to Monk and, and Andrew's playing and comp- composing.
0: And they also, they both have, I think, a deeper connection to a lot of vernacular forms and traditions than people realize if they just listen to, if you first meet their music.
1: Yeah, well, I think, um, and I must say I can relate to this, I think he gets pegged as a uh, intellectual or kind of, um, uh, well, um, less of this kind of heroic soloist and more of a kind of thinker in the music or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you check out some really early albums of his, like there's this one called So In Love with the Andrew Hill Trio. You ever heard that?
0: I I have not heard that I know of it, but yeah. I haven't heard it.
1: It's Malachi favors on bass, and I forget who's on drums. It was, a, it was live in Chicago in some in a club, you know, and uh, they play some slick arrangements of you know, love for sale and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, but then there are also some kind of um, I guess I would call them art pieces in there. There's like a, there's this. Uh, Kind of haunting blues refrain sort of thing where they're singing. Actually, they just sort of. I think it might even be Andrew singing this melody, wordless, and uh, and then he plays. And the way he plays on there is very vocal. Like it has this, in the sense of like Billie Holiday kind of. You know, it has this um, phrasing that you hear as connected to the blues, and then if you keep pursuing that line, like if you listen to subsequent recordings of him as a sideman like with Roland Kirk and then with Joe Henderson and so forth, uh, Hank Mobley is it, um, you hear that that particular approach to phrasing, that kind of vocal quality, it's sort of, it's not exactly metric but it's grounded, you know, it, it's not out, it's actually just sort of deeper in, in fact. <laughs> uh, in the same way like if you see footage of Billie Holiday you can see that she's actually in the pocket, like she's dancing, yeah. and then the phrases kind of um, hang back off of that, but it's all part of the same body, you know? Mm-hmm. So he's, he's the same way that you actually realize, that, oh, the stuff that I thought was way out there and just kind of like disrupting the pulse was actually just finding new pathways through or across the pulse, but the pulse mm-hmm. is there. You know, the groove is there. It's very much uh, has that uh, rhythmic focus in it.
0: You know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, we have a live recording mm-hmm. of uh, a little bit later in Andrew Hill's experience. This is much the, later, uh, actually. Quite a bit yeah. later. Yeah. Uh, relatively recent as these things go, even. Uh, the date is August 31st, 2000. We're in Chicago in a uh, fantastic Patrillo band shell in Grant Park and this is the point of departure sextet bringing a new focus to that music
1: yeah andrew had a sort of renaissance um well i didn't mention that i got to know him quite well oh yeah uh, you know uh i got i started i'd meet him when he'd come out to oakland to play or um I'd i'd just seek him out wherever he was showing up in that area and then when i came to new york i sought him out again and we would connect, and he called me up. Actually, give me a lot of advice. He'd come to my shows and tell me to stop doing certain things. <laughs> <laughs> really? Wow! <laughs> no, he he was a, he kind of um, he was very supportive, you know. And I, uh, um, but anyway, around that period when I moved here, which was 15 years ago, um, he was having
0: this renaissance, you know. He had, yeah, he was almost off the scene for quite a while or so. It seemed to. Us, uh, New York centric. <laughs> exactly. Listeners.
1: Well, I think he just had different choices and different priorities about what it is to be to have a life in music in America, and particularly um, having a, a particular community focus that he had. You know, he taught a lot. He worked in prison. You know, he taught music in prisons and um, took teaching posts here and there, so that he could have some stability and focus on different priorities and not be in that industry rat race and stuff and uh
0: he had he seemed like he i met him a handful of times he had a uh wandering a wanderlust in his approach to the world in a certain uh, sense like he well
1: he had the he's a he was kind of a a trickster <laughs> yeah yes, talking was. to him he could he was very uh he was um he had a Great. Just an interesting sense of humor. <laughs>
0: Very uh elliptical, I guess is the word. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and he might come at something and come with a whole different approach to what I mean, obviously in the music, but in life yeah. and in person was my sense about him.
1: Yeah. I mean I should say that he was best known, I think, for the work in the on Blue Note records in yeah, the sixties. Yeah. That's kind of what put him on the jazz family tree you know (laughs) that sort of stuff uh he had he did plenty of stuff before that some of which i mentioned he also did a whole lot of stuff after that and in fact his solo playing that emerged in the 70s um maybe out of necessity like well maybe those were the kinds of opportunities he could manage um it's its own language you know and we'll get into that later but that there's that's very well documented from the 70s and 80s and he also did a lot of small group um, recordings throughout the '80s. He was on Blue Note again in the '80s. There's some albums yeah. with Osby and yeah. um, Rufus Reid, Bobby Hutcherson, and uh, and then you know there was another sort of decade where he was in different places. He was in Portland and different places, uh, you know. And when he basically when he came back out east in the late '90s, was when people started. People, when I say people, I mean. New York centric jazz community and then by extension the jazz audience around the world as it's called you know um started to remember or remind themselves or rediscover the greatness of Andrew Hill and I think he sort of struck at that moment again he saw that there was an opportunity and re- you know created this point of departure sextet which is a clear reference to that classic album which i mentioned at the beginning uh and you know was meant to uh, reactivate that sound i think and that instrumentation it's a great title too and if you think of all the things
0: that came yeah i mean because we're talking now about four decades or three and a half decades yeah and it it truly was the point of departure i mean it's a it's kind of a a brash thing (laughs) for a young band leader to say and he
1: yeah, it wasn't his first thing on Blue Note. That was Smokestack, which is one of my. Or no, actually, it was Black Fire, and then it was Smokestack. And then it was. Uh, so, anyway, I'm a fan, as you can tell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Smokestack is my favorite album of all time of any artist. Wow. Actually. Okay. But,
0: uh, but it's not the Smokestack Sextet. No. <laughs> That's too hard to no, say. No, that is. <laughs> uh, anyway,
1: so he brought this, he convened this sort of new version of the unit with Nasheed Waits. Yes. It's amazing, amazing drummer. Uh, Scott Colley, Ron Horton on trumpet, who I think was involved in maybe kind of uh, uh, doing some arranging or copying or something like that. And uh, Marty Ehrlich on saxophone, and a uh, really amazing saxophonist who I got to collaborate with for some years, named Aaron Stewart. He was actually in the first version of this project of mine called Fieldwork, this collaborative unit Um, that uh, has been in existence since then with different members, but uh, back then it was me and Aaron Stewart and Elliot Humberto Cavi. So I was really interested in uh, uncorking this recording, this live recording from 2002. I remember when it happened. I remember him talking about it, uh, meaning I remember Andrew, Andrew talking about it. I also remember Aaron talking about it, and I remember hearing that, the one and only Von Freeman it's yeah. sat in with Andrew Hill, kind of activating the Chicago connection.
0: Yeah, that that's a a prize, and uh, yeah, Andrew Hill, originally from Chicago, Von Freeman, anchor of the scene there. Yeah, and here we are out in this fantastic outdoor venue yeah. in the middle of the city of Chicago. So it's yeah,
1: and you'll hear it. It sounds like an outdoor gig. Yeah. Everyone's got this extroversion (laughs) it's really like okay these
0: 30,000 people need to
1: hear what you're saying right now
0: (laughs) so to reach the last yeah yeah exactly yeah well shall we dive in yeah for sure let's go come on everybody get your jet pack (laughs) we are off to chicago it's music from andrew hill the point of departure sextet 2002 2000 i think right oh august 31st 2000 oh you're right yes indeed yeah. it's Deep Focus my guest is Vijay Iyer I'm Mitch Goldman this is WKCR
2: our next artist is Andrew Hill I want you to welcome him because he's one of the most important pianists and composers of the modern jazz era he's a native Chicagoan and he's recorded classic albums for Blue Note and other labels since the 1960s And he continues to be one of the most influential jazz artists of our time. Now, later in this set, he will be joined by Chicago jazz legend Vaughn Freeman. Just now, however, let's meet the musicians who will be accompanying him. First, let's meet on trumpet Ron Horton. On sax, we have Marty Ehrlich, also sax. Aaron Stewart, bass Scott Colley, drummer Nesheet Waits. Gentlemen, now let's give a big Chicago welcome to the return engagement of Andrew Hill. One, two, three.
3: For the gifted, Aaron stood on tenor, Aaron Stewart tenor, let's give him some love, huh? like we know what love's about, right? <laughs> and, and let's give a person who I enjoy playing with every time I'm honored because he played differently and enthusiastically and invigorating, etc. Marty Ehrlich, Marty Ehrlich. And someone I should be ashamed of myself for because I don't treat them right. You know, some, sometimes they say the devil's apprentice is a hell of a position to be in. But in spite of it all, let's give Ron Horton trumpet a hand. And on, on drums, you, you, know, when, when, you know, people talk about African retention and infinity. So I present to you, the, the son of a, the incredib- an, an incredible grill, Freddie Waits, drummer, his son, Nasheed Waits. <laughs> and, 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 and someone who who's be became who, and has become my literal left hand so much he's in demand now, but, but I love him just the same, Scott Colley.
0: <laughs> we are on the, the bandstand right now in chicago at grant park the petrillo bandshell with andrew hill the point of departure sextet you're listening to wkcr fm new york i'm mitch goldman the program is called deep focus and the deep focus is on andrew hill and our guest tonight is vijay Iyer and uh, we were talking about that performance the first time you heard Andrew Hill in San Francisco being revelatory. (laughs) I love that adjective. Yeah, I hope I said it right. Sometimes I get the V and the L mixed up or something. I think you got it. All right. We can fix it in post. (laughs) Okay. But uh, I, I think that's a great word to describe this, too. I love the idea of taking the conventional elements that what we generally think of forming an improvising sextet and kind of tearing them to pieces and reassembling them from the parts that you have there. Hmm. I think there's a little bit of something like that going on here of how this inter- this uh, rhythm section is working together and how the, uh, the communication, the way it's flowing.
1: You know, I think he was always like that, though. It's not like... Uh, um, well, or I guess I could say that the original point of departure, Sextet, had ah. that too. You know, it. Uh, the, his writing from the very beginning had this uh, real uh, sense of possibility and daring, and um, just uh, radical uh, new overview, kind of new new vision for what could be done with this collection of people with this collection of instruments. And uh, he he had, you know, I think he just thought differently from the beginning. Even if you listen to some of the trio stuff, or augmented trio stuff, like that album Smokestack is trio plus, because it's actually two bass players. Right, right, uh, right, yeah. Um, but, you know, the way he would write a, a ballad, or the way he would even his blues forms there would be something in them that actually wasn't um it wasn't like some chords in a melody right you know it was actually counterpoint he was dealing with counterpoint a lot and you heard that just now in abundance with those horns you know those ensemble parts are kind of opportunities for them to intersect and overlap and converse you know the um
0: I'm curious if this might be an impossible question to answer or you might not have access to the information, I don't know, but uh, how he communicated that concept to the musicians. if Is it in the writing or does that just come out of playing together or would he actually articulate, here's how I want this thing to work?
1: Oh, I, you know, there are people among us who could answer those questions. Yeah. Uh, I had the chance to, um, you know, as I said, I was... Very friend, you know, very close to him, and and uh, and uh, his his wife Joanne Robinson Hill, uh, a couple of years ago, pulled together some tribute concerts to him, and we played his music. I played, in basically, kind of, uh, I played with his final trio of side man, um, John Aber and Eric McPherson, and they brought in some uh, some of the. Pieces they, the last pieces they played with him. They had mm-hmm. it in his handwriting, and uh, it's interesting how he would distribute things on the page. You know, it's on a it's on a staff. You know, like right. It's sheet music. It's sheet music. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a way. Um,
0: actually, it reminded me
1: of some original Bach manuscripts.
0: I'm very interested that you said that because that's what I've been thinking about Bach uh, in relation to Andrew Hill.
1: Because um, things that were vertical, in the sense of like these units that were supposed to be sounded together, would actually, the way he would write them out, It's part, maybe it was just sort of his flair with the pen or something, I'm talking about Bach now, uh, would actually kind of, sp- sp- they'd be spread out. So that there'd be a sort of, um, you know, what's metrically a unity is actually... Um, each note in a chord might be displaced from the others you know so that it seems more like a composite unity you see the compositeness of, or you hear the compositeness It's as, as if it's meant to be sounded in a broken way or in a you know so looking at his manuscript looking at hill's manuscript now it had that quality that these chords that he would write they would be written in a way that would highlight the individual voices more than as much or more than the vertical sonority. So you would hear and see how these things kind of could be pulled apart like taffy. Wow. <laughs> and uh, when you hear him play solo, which we'll do later, um, you hear him doing that, even with a standard or something. Like, there's all this room between... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> between yeah. everything that to... Uh, so, like, it's sort of... It's not just a chord. It's like these notes placed in a certain order that kind of in the memory become a chord you know mm. so that's uh, there's just that um, I think he hears things in that way in that composite way so that uh, he's dealing as Braxton says with composite reality <laughs> uh, and that's you know that's abundantly obvious in that uh, ensemble right passages that we just heard in that music Yeah, yeah, And he also is clearly giving a lot of space for people to fill up the music, to sort of populate it, you know, and to fill it up with ideas and with sound and with interactivity. And I mean, it's everyone is
0: really bringing themselves to the table. Yes. Yes. Very distinct individuality coming out. Yeah. How uh, how flushed out are these are his compositions when you see them, as he writes them out?
1: Well, it's it's not a lead sheet, you know. It's actually notated. Um, The chords are they're not just chords; they're sounds. They're like sonorities that are voiced in this way. You know, it's so he's
0: articulating on the page the way he's hearing it. I mean, at least the
1: piano stuff, uh, right? That's That's how that
0: was. Um, But I, uh,
1: you know, I imagine that that's sort of how the ensemble stuff was too it was very specific about what notes are placed where and what registers it's orchestration you know he's orchestrating
0: and uh he uses a lot of unusual time
1: signatures too doesn't he uh certainly in the in these final years there was a lot of that yeah and uh you know there was a passage in that piece that was in seven and other passages that i couldn't figure out frankly <laughs> and there's an early piece of his from the album Judgment from the 60s called that's the title of which is Siete Ocho right and right um, you know so he dealt with and there's another one from uh, uh what's the name of that I think it's just the album is called Andrew it's the one with um, Sam Rivers on it quartet album there's something in there it's like a groove in five just sort of this loping baseline five beats cycle.
0: And that uh, fives and sevens are uh, an arena in which you have frolicked as well, <laughs> if I'm
1: not mistaken.
0: Well, I learned from these guys. I mean,
1: people think that I'm doing math, and it's sort of, you know, that would suggest that these guys weren't, which is a little bit demeaning to them. You know, like they were smart. And to you. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that too. But that's that, we're not talking about me. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of um, uh, intricacy in the music. Yeah. I guess I put it that way. Yeah. And it's composerly. Like it has this sense, like, okay, this is a made thing. You know. Yeah. And it's been worked over. It has uh, precision in it, and that's fine. You know, so if that means that you have to count beats, so be it. Yeah. (laughs) But the other thing is that uh, when you deal with these other kind of time cycles, like, they come from dance rhythms, you know? I mean, there are pop songs on the radio in India that are in 5 and 7. It's not a big deal, actually. (laughs) And and they're in movies, and people dance to them. You know, it's... uh, And I've been to... A Greek wedding where everybody and their grandma was dancing at eleven, and it wasn't a big deal either, <laughs> so <laughs> it's you like at the end of the measure you you gotta... <laughs> know, well if people you know if you if a room full of normal people can dance to something then uh, you can't call it odd yeah in the sense of strange, you can call yeah. it odd in the sense of literally not even right but, right but it's not strange
0: well, you know it's funny thinking about that in the context of how Andrew Hill's music is perceived a lot of the time of this, uh, kind of bridge into avant-garde and, you know, rooted in the tradition. And, um, I don't know where I'm going with this actually. I just think he's, uh, he's hearing some things that other people aren't hearing.
1: Well, he, uh, studied specific things. He found, he noticed specific things about the piano and, uh, you know, the story is that he studied counterpoint with Hindu myth or something like that. Or maybe through correspondence. And uh that he you know, he was a composer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he was also very much of the scene, you know, he was on a lot of records with a lot of folks, like who were pretty serious. You know, he wasn't just some heady dude in the corner. He was right in the middle of
0: things. So I'm wondering if you want to expand on what you're saying about him discovering certain things about the piano. Oh. Huh. Well, let's get to it when we get yes. to the solo stuff. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to remind you of that. Yeah. So uh, you're listening to WKCR. We call this program Deep Focus, and now you know why. The Deep Focus is on Andrew Hill, and our guest tonight is Vijay Iyer, I'm Mitch Goldman, and uh, we've got the great good fortune to have this fantastic live recording from Chicago in the summer of 2000, In it's the Chicago Jazz Festival, and uh, the Petrillo Band Shell is right in Grant Park, right in the heart of that uh, fantastic city from which Andrew Hill emerged as a young person, and uh, very much a happy homecoming here in this Recording And the group, we will tell you once again, Ron Horton on the trumpet, Marty Ehrlich on the alto saxophone, Aaron Stewart on the tenor saxophone, Scott Colley playing bass, Nasheep Waits on the drums, Andrew Hill is our pianist and band leader, and we'll have a guest showing up in just a bit, Von Freeman on tenor saxophone. And uh, I think we'll just dive right back in. Yeah, please. Yes, this is... Andrew Hill on WKCR.
3: It's been my, my pleasure, your treat, I hope, to, to have heard Aaron Stewart on tenor saxophone. Aaron Stewart. Ron Horton, trumpet. Marty Ehrlich, saxophone. And, and, and at this moment, we're gonna get historic historical in in a event you know his story is life what's going on right now at the moment, if you hear me. So what we're trying to do is present to you Von Freeman on tenor.
0: Now they're figuring it out. Now they're kind of getting the idea that <laughs> <laughs> we are in Chicago. We're at the Petrillo Bandshell in Grant Park, and the magnificent Andrew Hill is on stage and uh, leading the point of departure sextet. The program is called Deep Focus, and... We are putting the deep focus on Andrew Hill. Vijay Iyer is my guest. I'm Mitch Goldman, and um, this is a, this is quite a set, covering a lot of ground. <laughs> yes, indeed, that was pretty magnificent, huh? Yeah, that that was actually just uh, one big sprawling. Well, I
1: think it was. A, I think it was two. A couple of compositions. I think they, there was that um, um, ballad-like. I don't know if ballad is the word. Adagio is the word. <laughs> yeah, call it what it is. Uh, uh, the thing that um, had its kind of breath-like pace to it, mm. and uh, the sort of corral-like stuff from the horns. Um, then there was a bass solo that segued into this last thing they did, which yeah. is called Fifteen Eight. That's what uh-huh. it was known as, and that's, you know, again, he named it after the. Meter that it's in, and that baseline, that ostinato baseline, um, pretty wondrous and strange.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. the w- the way the parts fit around each other, and then the way that the horns kind of hang off of that framework is yeah. quite unique.
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem possible, and yet any th- at any moment you think it might collapse but it doesn't just doesn't just keeps going (laughs) yeah
0: yeah and there's a there there, you need a certain amount of faith i guess among the musicians i mean everybody's got to have that absolute certainty that this thing is going to to come off right
1: well this really feels like a working band i mean i i remember seeing versions of this band here in new york and i know that they toured a lot uh you know aaron worked quite a bit i remember that uh, was a
0: question I was going to ask you. If we know, kind of, how many shows these guys might have had under their belts.
1: Oh, I don't know a number, but I know that they they got on the road a bit. They were going to Europe and playing festivals and things. They didn't. They weren't like road hounds taking every gig. I mean, Andrew was never the type of.
0: Day. October seventh, two thousand thirteen, was a Monday night. Like all of these deep focused programs. VJI are in the studio with me on the topic of Andrew Hill. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman, and I've just been listening the same as you have, and really enjoying listening back to this. And this is so very much what this show is all about. Vijay's combination of his 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 passion for the music and his intimate knowledge of it and his personal familiarity with andrew hill it's just uh, a fantastic combination and then the great archival recordings i hope you're enjoying it i am have i mentioned this lately you can subscribe to this show if you haven't already you can listen to i can't say hundreds we haven't crossed the 200 line yet but we will soon And I can say there's hundreds of episodes up. But there's a whole lot of them. You can find them on your favorite podcasting app or at our hosting site, which is mitchgoldman.podbean.com. Come on by there. Send your friends by there. If you know people who love this music, or if you're a music teacher, or if you're um, whatever, you know, uh, spread the word. Spread the word. Another thing you could do if you enjoy the show, you know, we don't accept any money from you. The only thing I would ask, if you enjoy it, is to click on, uh, say that you like it, give us the thumbs up or the five stars or whatever your app uh, allows, and that's going to help people find this show who don't know about it, which I think is a great thing. I just want people to hear it. So, okay, this is part one. There's two more parts. So, check out two and three of this show from 2013, October 7th, and... Uh, If you're digging it, if you want to let us know, come find us on Instagram. We're Deep Focus Podcast. And there's always discussion over there and announcements of upcoming shows and all kinds of stuff like that. All right. I'm glad you're along for the ride. It means everything.